moved our menus, we do have the option of using paper menus, disposable ones. The current menus that we've always used because they are laminated and they're very easily sanitized right after a customer uses them. And also to use a digital option on their phone. They can just scan a QR code and have the menu pop right up for them. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And this week, we're in a Waffle House in Brookhaven, Georgia. And what you just heard was company spokeswoman Nieri Boss explaining how they're going to make waffle eating a socially distant activity. In the past week, the state governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, has given restaurants like Waffle House the green light to reopen, also tattoo parlours and gyms. Federal health officials thought it was too soon. So did the mayor of Atlanta. So did President Trump. But the governor ignored all of them and went ahead with the reopening. He's not the only policymaker to ignore expert advice since the COVID crisis hit. We've seen quite a lot of governments try to ban the export of food or key medical supplies, for example, despite official advice to keep trade flowing and borders open. In a little while, I'll talk to the economist Richard Baldwin, about economic nationalism in a crisis and whether it ever makes sense. Keep listening if you want to find out the answer and how it all relates to Alexander the Great. But first, I want to hear more about those waffles. Mike Sasso is Bloomberg Real Economy reporter based in Atlanta and he's gone to see for himself. So it turns out you're at the cutting edge of the reopening of America. Tell us about what's opened up in Georgia the last few days and what people think about it. Sure. The the governor of Georgia uh, controversially came up with a reopening plan for the state of Georgia in which he allowed some tattoo parlors, nail salons, gymnasiums and barbershops to open up last Friday. And then he was going to he allowed for some restaurants and movie theaters actually to open up uh, Monday. Now, you went to a Waffle House, which I know is uh, is pretty popular in, in some quarters. It's a great place to go late night after a show. Tell me what it was like. Were there, were there people there? Did you have a waffle? I, I didn't. Uh, it was a – there were not many people there, actually. over the. I was there for you know, perhaps about an hour Monday morning, and they had, they had just opened a couple hours earlier than that. Um, and, and when I was there, there were maybe three people who wandered in and, and getting takeout orders. There was nobody actually at the restaurant sitting down and eating. Now, some of that, to be sure, may have there was it was quite a scene where, uh, where there was quite a number of local and national media there to document people as they wandered in. So it, it's, uh, it's possible that some people were just camera shy and stayed away. I did venture out to another Waffle House that was not the scene of such a media frenzy. And there were about two people sitting at the counter. There was another man enjoying some coffee and unfurling a newspaper at a booth. You know, certainly not a ton of people. I did speak with one Gentlemen, he had kind of left the kids in the SUV while he ran in to pick up his takeout order. He believes that within a week or two, uh, he and his, his whole family of uh, four kids and a wife would probably venture in for dine-in service. And uh, I, I think that's probably what you're going to see here in Georgia, as over time, people are going to start getting bolder 
just like this gentleman was, and they'll start with perhaps a takeout order, then uh, perhaps in a few days or a week, I think you'll see them start to venture in. Uh, and we are starting to see a, a surprising number of restaurants like Waffle House, um, Outback Steakhouse, another huge American chain, is opening its units in Georgia as well. And so while you've seen some opposition among sort of prominent high-end restaurants in Atlanta, uh, some of these more mainstream outlets have opened and are uh, going full, uh, full bore. Well, uh, Mike, I hadn't thought about the added risk to your health and social distancing of having large numbers of reporters all around you as you try and order your your waffle. That's a whole extra hazard for all these people. But, I mean, we'll talk a bit about the politics of it in a minute. But it is, I know the conversation you had with the representative from the Waffle House, which is this big national chain, you know, they're taking it pretty seriously in terms of the steps they have to take to make this safe. I guess be nice to hear that conversation you had with her now run through the steps that you've taken again to to okay about six weeks ago when we were limited to take out only we all and, and social distancing had been recommended we took those steps to heart we actually had uh, locations in the store on the floor located where where customers could come in and stand they were very respectful of that when they came in to place their orders wait for their food they needed to wait outside we had six feet of distance outside a couple of chairs outside on our front porch uh, we also took our condiments off at that time six weeks ago off of the tables uh, so we've kept that as well and of course our associates are wearing their masks as a restaurant we've always had food safety protocols that we've had to follow in place that includes uh, regular hand washing folks have been really respectful of that some employees are probably bound to be a little bit nervous about coming in contact with customers how did you treat the employees? Were they a- able to say, no, I, I'm not ready to come in yet? How did you treat that with oh, employees? Oh, yeah, of course. We're not asking anyone to come in who isn't ready or comfortable to come in. Uh, if they weren't ready to come in, we went and talked to, to uh, associates who were ready and willing and able. Most of these folks have been with us already through the six weeks. We tried to keep on as many associates as possible working. But if someone said to us, hey, I'm, I just don't feel safe or I don't feel comfortable or whatever the reason may be, it may be childcare because the daycares are closed, schools are closed, that they needed to stay home. So we said that's fine. Could and they keep their jobs or how would you treat their jobs if they didn't want to come in yet? Well, we furloughed several people, over a thousand uh, managers. We furloughed 350 folks from our support team, which includes the corporate office and those who work in the field. And so we haven't at this point brought back furloughed folks yet, uh, but these were individuals who either were working very few hours for us already, given the opportunity to maybe have a few more hours. We're hoping that with this limited dine-in service option that we will see the kind of response from the customers that will allow us to bring more associates back to work, more shifts that can be open uh, throughout the day. It doesn't seem like a lot of people. I, I didn't see anyone in there dining in. You just maybe saw a couple takeout. Is that how it's going so far? When I came on this morning at about 7.50 this morning, there was a gentleman sitting at the high counter enjoying his meal. He finished and he left. We had two more people come in, sit down and enjoy their meals, but most of it has been takeout as it has been for the past six weeks. We weren't expecting that we were going to be overwhelmed with uh, customer, demand, customer demand right away. 
we know it's going to take some time. We're just hoping that people, those, especially those who've come in and they've seen, they've been coming in and getting takeout, that maybe instead of eating in their cars or taking it all the way back home or taking it to their job, or take a few more minutes to sit down and enjoy a hot meal. And just last question, uh, take me through the deliberations about why they chose to reopen. What, what, went, what, were, what was in the decision-making process? Well, like I said, we've always been open. We've only, unfortunately, had to close 700 stores nationwide uh, temporarily, we hope. The decision is very simple. There are two sides to this equation. One is the very real public health crisis of the virus and how it's affecting people. The other half is the brewing public health crisis that is coming because of people who are unable to earn a living. Uh, the despair that comes from that, the inability to take care of the obligations that don't stop. So we really want to be there for our associates to allow those who want to work, who are able to work, to come back to work. Mike, it's striking because we spoke last week to Sharon Chen, uh, the bureau chief in Beijing, about her time in Wuhan. And it was quite a different story that the businesses were opened up, but really no one was going into the restaurants and there didn't seem to be a great desire to go out and consume. I wonder if that's just the very different experience that Wuhan had, or is it a, almost a cultural difference that, that people, maybe particularly in Georgia, do feel a bit more libertarian, a bit more determined to go out and exercise their freedoms how do you think that, that the politics of exiting lockdown is going to work in uh, in your state? Yeah, I, I do. I do. There's an interesting political component to all this. More uh, libertarian and conservative-minded folks are being a little bit more uh, willing to get out and explore and get out of the house and frequent some of these businesses. We certainly saw that when I visited Cartersville, Georgia, a small town up in North Georgia, it tends to be more conservative. Those folks wondered what the fuss was all about, uh, and they were eager to get out uh, here in Atlanta, which uh, is, is a little bit more liberal. There is a sense of, of more caution. So there is certain, you know, certainly range of opinions. I think one of the more interesting things that I've found is there's an element of competition here that I think will weigh on business owners. I did hear from, I have heard from businesses that didn't want to, to open up this quickly, but they're seeing their competing businesses open. Uh, and so they're being uh, sort of forced to open. I, I heard that from a gym owner um, in Cartersville, Georgia, who wanted to wait another couple weeks. Uh, however, uh, competing gyms were starting to open. And so he had to open. And in fact, interestingly, uh, he's actually done fairly well by opening. Uh, he was shocked to learn that he had picked up 13 additional fitness center customers who were defecting from a gym that didn't open this past Friday. So there are people who want to get out, and those people may be voting with their pocketbooks in some case by helping those businesses that choose to to open earlier. And I do have to worry a little bit about that competition. You talked about the national restaurant chains, maybe a little bit easier for them to establish careful protocols and get hold of all of the protective equipment for their employees. 
than these small-time restaurants who will feel they have to open up because the big guys have opened up. So you have to wonder what the what the implications will be and also I guess the what's the what's the threshold at which people start to change their mind if it looks like the coronavirus is not under control in the state. I guess there'd be two different sets of opinion on that as well, Mike. Yeah, to to your point about a lack of protective equipment, you know, one of the the gym owner that I mentioned in Cartersville that sort of felt forced to open sort of before he wanted to, he admitted at the end of my call with him that they are already running low of sanitizer and wipes to wipe down the equipment. Certainly there are a lot of people watching Georgia and a lot of people who are opponents of the governor's move. And if it turns out that the COVID-19 cases spike here, as some people think, uh, the governor will be under tremendous pressure. Uh, and this could be a, a, a real challenge for him when it comes to uh, re-election time. Well, and I bet the people who go to the gym probably think they're already very fit and that will protect them. But we know that's not necessarily the case. OK, I guess my, my only question, which is more frivolous, is what restaurant opening would actually get you ordering some food if you didn't get a waffle at the waffle house what what will you what will you want to order when it opens up well interestingly uh atlanta is a is a a very diverse uh, community we have a a, in in the, the suburb where i live it's sort of the duluth lawrenceville georgia area northeast of atlanta they have a large korean population and I, I happen to have uh, my favorite restaurant is a Korean taco place that's in Duluth, Georgia. Okay. And so if and when I've not been by that restaurant, but if and when it opens the dine-in service, I will be frequenting the Korean taco place. And I went to I saw you there. We went out for a meal at uh, the end of last year. You didn't take me there. Next time you have. To. Yeah. OK, thanks very much, Mike Sasso. Sure. So I'm delighted to welcome back to Stephanomics, Professor Richard Baldwin, Professor of International Economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Uh, Richard's just co-edited with Simon Everett a book for the European think tank, the Centre for Economic Policy Research, which is called COVID-19 and Trade Policy, Why Turning Inward Won't Work. Richard, we have had a lot of talk on this program and generally about countries turning inward in response to this crisis and maybe companies wanting to be less global um, and maybe be more self-sufficient in key ways, reduce their reliance on China. But uh, we've also seen some very short-term sort of knee-jerk reactions by countries just in the last month or two trying to safeguard their supplies of key medical equipment and food. So I see that, you know, Russia has tried to limit its exports of grain, for example. Vietnam put limits, uh, at least for a while, on its export of rice. You know, when we hear about these things, they it sounds selfish. It doesn't sound very kind of civic spirited when governments do this. But I think a lot of people will instinctively have more sympathy uh, with policymakers doing that at a time of crisis, when people are really worried about, for example, getting that personal protective equipment. But you think it's it's just as misguided in times of crisis as it is in normal times. Why is that? Well, the basic uh, 
problem is that we live in the 21st century where to make almost anything, you have to import products. So just to take an example, respirator masks use inputs from a number of countries. And so blocking exports of the mask, which may trigger retaliation, can gum up the whole supply chain and therefore make it harder for everybody to make masks anywhere. The way manufacturing works today, it is globalized, and we can't change that during the COVID crisis. There are factories all around the world, including in China, and blocking exports of American uh, uh, masks, for example, risks retaliation, which will essentially build walls in the global factory. So trying to keep more products at home to boost local availability is actually hindering the world's ability to produce this good. And if the retaliations go far enough, then we'll have a real disaster like 1929, where everybody's banning exports, and that makes it hard for anybody to make anything. So that's the real danger, is that this thing could spiral out of control. Yeah, and I noticed in the, in the forward to your, your e-book, uh, Gordon Brown, the former prime minister, makes exactly that point, makes the reference back to the, the 20s and, and fears. Yeah, and you make the interdependence point, and I have to say I wasn't aware of this. So the US is heavily dependent on the imports of personal protective equipment, but also is a major exporter and even an exports to China. So if you're, you, you, can't, you can't necessarily unpick this. I mean, food, you know, we've talked a bit about the medical side. Food is the other thing that uh, quite a few countries have reached to, to try and limit exports. You know, the opposite of what we often see when we see these kind of competitive situations in trade where actually you're trying to maximise your exports and minimise your imports. We've had uh, the opposite here. People are trying to keep hold of their imports but stop those exports of, of key of food. You can see the logic of it when something like Russia, somebody like Russia tries to make sure that they can hold on to their grain supplies. But what's the implication in practice? Well, so uh, just to give you a little classical reference you may enjoy, Alexander the Great, right before he went off to conquer the world, he forbade the exports of all food from Greece exactly because he wanted to keep the food prices low in Greece and therefore keep the the population happy. Uh, Now, we live in a different world than Alexander the Great. The last time this happened was in uh, 2006, 2007, there was a round of export restraints on food and the price of food rises. Now, once the price of food rises, nations will be worried about uh, shortage of food. And so they very often start buying to build up stocks at that time. So therefore, the prices rise more. And to protect the local markets, more exporters block off the exports. And so this this round can lead to uh, very high, very rising prices as it did in 2007. And although the, the people are blocking the exports, you can understand it, as you said. It, it keeps the price lower than it would otherwise. It's really a disaster for the developing world and poor people in general. So it's a kind of a tit-for-tat thing that's triggering um, behaviors which could be avoided with cooperation. I like to draw an analogy with what happened with toilet paper early on in this crisis. So there is ac- absolutely no shortage of toilet paper in the world. But when people thought that there might be a shortage of toilet paper, they all decided to stock up at home. And because there is not enough toilet paper in the world for everybody to have a three-week supply at home, at least in the short run, there was a shortage of toilet paper. And a similar sort of thing can happen with food. The FAO uh, shows that the stocks 
to consumption ratios are perfectly fine in the major grains worldwide. There is no shortage of food right now. But if every nation decides to accumulate a two-month supply because they're afraid the food exporters are going to ban, then there will be a shortage of food and the prices will go up and more exporters will ban it. So we get into this bad balance, this bad kind of outcome situation where the export bans of food go up, which make people panic and want to buy more food, which then makes it more expensive, which then makes more people put on the export ban. So it's really a kind of lack of coordination. And we saw that last in 2006, 2007, uh, right before the, the global crisis. It was completely unrelated to the global crisis, but that's the last time it happened. Finally, I think just a, a couple more questions, but that what you described what would be, in some sense, the nightmare scenario. You get into that big collective action problem where a few export restrictions here and there have spiraled into a complete closure of, of global supply chains. You know, a lot of governments and certainly international organizations like the International Monetary Fund have been quite aware of this coming into this crisis. They've seen governments, some perhaps... Um, succumbing to this instinct or at risk of succumbing to that instinct. And I've seen groups of countries, even in the last week or so, come together to sign declarations that they're not going to have these kind of export restrictions, especially on food and medical supplies. So would you say right now uh, that we have uh, that we are really heading down that road? Or do you think so far we've managed to stop that kind of downward spiral? No, I I think we are in the danger of the spiraling out of control. So as you pointed out, there are sensible people around the world who understand that what goes around comes around. And when you start putting on export bans, other people will retaliate. So the the countries that you were were talking about were signing, led, led by New Zealand and others, who agreed not to restrict exports of, of food, it did not include Russia, for example. It did not include uh, the United States in uh, in a binding way. And I think the problem is, is we have uh, a, an American president who has very strong instincts to uh, close off the border whenever he can. He does not understand the whole point about international supply chains. So I think there is a danger of it spinning out of control. Moreover, two of the biggest producers of the medical products and now we're talking about medical equipment and, and, and kit, it's China and uh, the United States. And they have a, a trade war going on, and this, other, this thing could get wrapped up in it. So I, I think it is a real concern. Now, just, just to sort of reiterate what the problem is there is that if one country starts putting on bans and the other one starts putting on bans, that can mean that the availability of uh, medical equipment starts to fall everywhere. And that makes more people put on bands to keep at home what medical equipment they have. So again, it's one of these things that tumble out of control. In the 1930s, people were, countries were trying to shift demand to themselves with tariffs. And what happened was with the retaliation is they destroyed aggregate demand everywhere. What could happen here is that an attempt to keep supply local with export bans, everybody ends up destroying the factory uh, global value chains and supply chains, and they destroy supply everywhere. So there's another example on the self-defeating export uh, bans that uh, we saw when India banned the export of chloroquine, which if you remember a few weeks ago, so the President of the United States and even some other people, some doctors, were saying that chloroquine might be 
a treatment for COVID. Now, what happened then was India, who has a lot of people, said, we're going to ban the export of chloroquine. And that lasted for a day or two before they realized that they import all the precursors for chloroquine from China. So they reversed themselves because they realized an export ban that led China to retaliate with an export ban would actually mean that they had no chloroquine domestically. And that's the example of trying to increase the availability of a supply by building walls within your own factory. And it just doesn't work. It's a backfire. It might have made sense in the 20th century, but it doesn't make sense in the 21st manufacturing world. Professor Richard Baldwin, thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks for listening to Stephanomics, the podcast that takes you from waffles to toilet paper via Alexander the Great and the history of global trade. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is turning the world economy upside down. But remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Mike Sasso in Atlanta and Professor Richard Baldwin in Geneva. Scott Lamman is the executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>